naturally occurring psychoactive compound, psilocybin, is found in over 200 species of mushrooms. Despite their millennia of use by humans for mental and spiritual well-being, they have been classified falsely among the most dangerous and illegal of substances, locked away from those who need them most. The Psilocybin Chronicles documents the individuals who courageously consume, collect, or cultivate these mushrooms to improve the quality of their lives. Won't you join us as we welcome the return of psilocybin? Welcome to another episode of the Psilocybin Chronicles. I am your host, Eric Osborne. Interest in psilocybin-assisted therapy has grown rapidly in recent years and even months. The benefits are becoming more widely known, and there are even developing training programs for aspiring psychedelic psychotherapists. Currently, the California Institute of Integrated Studies is offering graduate credits in what is often called trip-sitting. I can tell you that this is a very valuable skill, and that it requires refinement and practice. In my opinion, one of the most important roles of an effective sitter is to experience psilocybin on a regular or at least semi-regular basis. As this form of therapy becomes more widely used, we will need to scrutinize the administrators of these medicines even more. My personal belief is that trustworthiness of a facilitator or psychedelic administrator is not in his or her academic credentials, but in hours spent in practice. Psychology has taken a turn toward the cold and unfeeling. Psychology has taken a turn toward the cold and unfeeling. Experimental, or at best, brand new pharmaceuticals are prescribed to patients after single sessions, blaming all issues of mental health on chemical imbalances persuaded by megalithic corporations who have margins in mind, not mental health. Fortunately, we are seeing therapists such as my guest for today's podcast who are personally exploring psilocybin as a means of therapy. It's a no-brainer to me, and I'm often shocked to hear how little psychedelics so many of these therapists consume. Psychodynamic therapy, currently taking a backseat to other forms of psychoanalysis and prescription medications, I predict will once again become a foundational approach, especially when incorporated into psilocybin-assisted therapy. Try as we might to distance ourselves from transference, in my belief, it is an important part of the therapist's role to serve as a target for client transference. What is done with that projection becomes the relevant issue, and there is more than one way to embody, deflect, counter, or transmute this psychic energy. Watching and working with today's guest on a recent retreat was truly a pleasure. She was exceedingly skilled at helping move energy and being aware of what individuals need. My heart goes out to therapists who join us trying to understand psilocybin as a therapeutic tool. They come innocently enough, but often find as the mushroom takes hold that they're inevitable empaths, and that despite hopes for a relaxing dive into psilocybin, they find that they are being put to work, helping the group and themselves process the experience. Denise Rue is a licensed clinical social worker located in New Jersey. Denise works with adult survivors of trauma, especially childhood sexual trauma, using an eclectic approach that includes hypnosis, EMDR, mindfulness, and poetry therapy. Denise conducts individual as well as group therapy sessions. She has facilitated a recurring group for women survivors of childhood sexual abuse 
and co-facilitates a weekly women's sanctuary group based on Sandra Bloom's Sanctuary Model of Trauma. Denise has a long history of volunteer activities, including providing emotional support for patients in hospice care, teaching poetry in nursing homes, schools, and a women's prison, and leading monthly hypnosis groups for cancer survivors. Denise hopes to obtain her certification in psychedelic-assisted therapies in the coming year. Brand new to psilocybin, Denise knew little more than what she had read online and in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. She found out that there were many, many more layers to this work than has been popularly described, especially for someone as empathic as she. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Denise. Uh, okay, Denise. Well, thank you for joining us on the Psilocybin Chronicles. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Okay. So, our first question we always start with is, if there was someone that you could dose psilocybin with in your personal history or throughout world history, mm-hmm. who would that be and why? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it would be Rumi, the uh, 13th century Sufi mystic. He's been very important for me um, for the past 10 years at least, Um, and if he didn't take psychedelics, he achieved an ecstatic state through his dervishing, and so much of what I experienced, he has written about. So he would be a great teacher. I couldn't imagine going on a trip and having him by my side. We shared, uh, you know, a little bit from him mm-hmm. uh, this week, and it, it yes. does seem that he had access uh, to these mind states. And I think it's that's important that you're pointing out that psilocybin is not the only way to get there, mm-hmm. right? Um, have you worked with any other methods? I've been meditating for 20 years. Um, I certainly, I've been slogging through that, and it certainly has expanded my ability to be present, be comfortable being uncomfortable, um, honed my attention. Um, I don't know that I've achieved nirvana with it, you know, the end of suffering. Um, but it certainly has deepened my life, and I couldn't imagine being without it. But I have not tried any other um, psychedelics. Or any other, uh, you know, uh, holotropic breath work, um, Mm. or fasting even, you know. uh, uh, Just, just, you know, recognizing that there are other modalities to achieving uh, the unitive mind state. Mm. I've had energy healing. That was pretty ecstatic. I felt my heart open for weeks afterwards. Um, I think when I first did hypnosis, that tapped me into a deeper existence, and I was able to do that on myself. So I have been trying to find, and Reiki, also Reiki. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what led you to psilocybin, and when did you first become aware of psilocybin? Okay, 
So um, I'm a therapist, and I work with uh, trauma clients, and I think for the past five years I've been hearing about the research. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a chiropractor. His son went to Johns Hopkins, and I think we started to kind of swirl around our universe, right? And then I started getting the MAPS newsletter and reading up on that. And then Michael Pollan's book, uh, listening to podcasts. So it just all converged in the last six months very heavily. And at some point I heard about the certificate for psychedelic-assisted therapy. And I said, I think I want to do that. But if I do that... I'm going to have to do psilocybin first. I really Mm -hmm. respect that you um, had that mindset towards it. Um, Too many Mm -hmm. people, right now it seems like there's, there are people who are seeing this as just another, another medicine, another Mm -hmm. something that can be prescribed and the client can take it and they will feel better. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that your experience here this week uh, has illustrated (laughs) that's not necessarily the case. So, um, this week is the first time you've consumed psilocybin, correct? Mm-hmm. And, well, let's, let's start talking about that. Oh, gosh. Well, it, well, first of all, I really expected it to kind of be a solo trip that I would have um, my eye shades on and my uh, music on, and I spent a lot of time creating my playlist. I created a classical playlist, a meditation playlist, and a jazz playlist. Wait, wait, did you spend more hours creating it or listening to it? Um, Creating it. (laughs) Creating it. By far. By far. Yes. Um, And I thought that, okay, if I had a hard time, there would be safe people there who would guide me. But I never imagine that it would be this web of connection, not only with the facilitators, but with the other participants of the group. So that was a huge surprise. Um, You know, I just think this is like motherhood or childbirth, you can read all the books you want about it, or falling in love, but you don't know until you're in it. And um, I feel you have to enter with such humility and not fear, openness. And I had this attitude going in, you know, that I would just not, you know, give me courage. Let me not waver from the path. And I got that intention, but it beat me to a pulp on two of the trips, you know? So you want me to talk about my first trip? Yes, yes, I do, I do. Okay, well, that first trip... um, like, like you said, I was kind of ground zero in the space. And 
I didn't have my headphones in. And there was a lot of energy around. The people were pacing. It wasn't a comfortable energy. But I was able to, I was having a lot of visual hallucinations. And it was all very Alice in Wonderlandy. Um, you know, buildings with turrets and minarets and, and jewels. And it was all very beautiful and whimsical. Okay. And then I started to go down a little bit, and there was mud, but there were jewels in the mud. And, and I said, okay, I know, I gotta, I gotta dig deep, and there's jewels in there. And um, then I started having the real physical sensations, and I was moving a lot, like almost like it was a birthing experience. And I knew one of my intentions was I wanted to release the grief about my husband's death, my father's death, my mother's death, my brother's death. Um, and I think I really just sobbed, you know, gut-wrenching sobs with that. And I remember one of the facilitators had her hand on my back, just like I was, you know, in labor. And that was so, so reassuring to me. She was just there with me, and she offered me Kleenex, because, you know, we had copious amounts of snob <laughs> we talked about, right? It was just releasing all this energy. And then... After that grief experience, I kind of settled in, and then that coughing began. And I didn't want to disturb people, but it was really, it was, there was a lot of heat in my throat, and I was take, you know, taking off my necklace and trying to get rid of, rid of this energy in my throat that was very uncomfortable and kind of choking me. So I had to get out of there. And the facilitator walked out with me. And that's when I did kind of crumple. It seemed like the grass was undulating. And I remember falling to my knees in grief and saying, the earth has swallowed everyone I love. And we were just moving out, moving out, moving out to this fence. And she was talking to me about her brother who drowned, and she was saying, and I was trying to get rid of this energy, she goes, I think you need to, you know, maybe you should let out a scream, maybe you should let out a scream, but I didn't want to bother people back in the, the area, but I finally got to that fence, and I let out a few screams, and that was really, really, really helpful. And apparently it was helpful and empowering to some people back in the group. And then I came back inside, but after a while, I was, I can't really remember what I was going through, but, but feeling like I needed to travel again. And then I shot up and I said, I need a man for this part of the journey. Dang. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I did. 
And he took me outside, and we had a very, very, very long journey. And I, there was a lot of visuals. There was a lot of mesh for me, a lot of barbed wire to get through. Getting past the clothesline was very important. Old mother stuff. But the end goal was this house in the distance that had a porch. And it's like I, I, I kept feeling I have to get through there. I have to get to there. It was important for me. And I wanted to rest. And he kept offering me a chair. But I said, no, I, I need to make this journey. Which was really only about... What, 20 yards? <laughs> <laughs> well, it felt like a marathon. Right, right. And at one point, and there was still a lot of grieving going on, and every time I would talk about my husband, my it seemed like my feet would start sinking into the mud. I, and, and then when I came up in gratitude, I looked at the stars, the stars were my tether, and also the, the baby, I could hear the baby in the house behind us. Those two things were tethering me. At one point, when we were on our way to the house, to the right of it was a mausoleum, and it was very frightening, um, with mist coming up, which was like out of a horror film. And I said, I need to go there myself. But when I said that, it kind of disappeared. Because I felt, okay, I have to go in there and enter more deeply into my grief. But somehow we got over there and we sat down and um, that house to me became in my mind my grandparents' cabin in Montana where they had homesteaded. And I was sitting down, I felt like kind of an old woman and Dan was at my feet. And I got to tell the story. I got to tell the story of my losses. I got to tell the story of my gratitude, having a father that I did. And every time that I would talk about loss and grief, the houses around, the, the trees around the porch, they would become very menacing and the leaves would become like fingers and dark coming toward me. But every time I talked about gratitude, the trees would burst into blossom, <laughs> especially when I acknowledged my own strength and goodness. Then they just like shot into blossom. And that was beautiful. And when Dan empathized with me, his tattoo started bleeding and his tears were like diamonds. And it was just such an incredible gift. It was, it was what I have needed all these years, six years since my husband died. How long were you married? Over 20 years, mm -hmm. yeah. And I had wanted someone to listen to my story, my whole story for as long as it took. Mm -hmm. And he was so patient, and I, it was a story I couldn't tell my children because, you know, I had to protect them and they're doing their own grieving. 
But that was a gift. So there was such a male-female energy that night that was so profound and necessary. And um, once I integrated that over the next day, I felt just kind of like hollowed out, like I had, I had burned out so much stuff mm. that had been in my body. And then I was able, it was able to be filled with light and joy and laughter. And that's what happened on the second trip, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I had made that intention that because one of the things I was pondering about in the first trip was why are all these people back in the space laughing? I don't get it. I don't get it. It seems to come so easy for some people, but then I knew it didn't. I was like reasoning out a lot of stuff in the field, but I knew that what I need, what I have been lacking maybe my whole life is this true belief that the universe is benevolent, that I can ask for what I need and I have to trust. And when I had that realization, when I really felt it viscerally that first night, I looked up at the stars and kind of a scaffolding came down, like all you have to do is ask, but it didn't come all the way down to the ground. It's like, I don't trust enough yet. Mm. So for my second trip, I said, help me believe that the universe is benevolent. And, you know, that trip was pure bliss. I, I was listening to music, some of my music, and I was kind of wrapped up. We were outside. I was under the beautiful pine tree. And I was kind of on my side in fetal position. And I felt like I was an infant going through this necessary developmental process where I felt the world revolved around me. I was that important. And when the moon rose and the stars came out, it was be for me. And that's what I told my children growing mm -hmm. up. If you were the only person on earth, if the, the stars would still come out for you, the moon would rise for you. And I gave, the mushrooms gave me that. And it was, it was just, it was beautiful. It was, it was like, this is all for me. And the grass was growing up towards me and it was like, these flowers were for me, and the lights around, it was like a kingdom, and this is, this is for me. And it didn't, it didn't seem like egotistical or any craving involved. It's just that piece that you belong here, you have agency, you're rooted here, you are important. You are necessary to this fabric. And it was beautiful. I was ecstatic. And I felt such gratitude. And then I remember getting up 
and I came over to you and I said, it's so easy this time. And I moved toward the fire because that seemed very, very, very primal, protecting. And uh, Julie and other women were coming and going and sitting under that palm tree. And we all had the sense that this is the goddess palm tree. And we sat under there all night. Julie and I kind of sat there. And other women came and went. They kind of got what they need, needed. And then they left. But Julie and I sat there and we laughed. And I haven't laughed like that in probably definitely a decade mm -hmm. and it was, it was so wonderful it was hilarious it was so 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 necessary it was so necessary and um and beautiful and and like i said i like i had been hollowed out from the previous trip so i could experience this great sense of belonging mm -hmm. and gratitude and joy and laughter. It was, it was exquisite. You mentioned the male and female dynamic, mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to try to explore a little bit uh, some of how it seems that you and I have worked together this week. You know, you can't, you didn't, you came here for a vacation, and you found out mm -hmm. that wherever <laughs> you go, you're helping people. Basically, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you're a processor. Um, and it's interesting to me that Ben, who is gone this month and is usually that role with me, mm -hmm. um, it's like you were selected almost to be in that role. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to apologize. I didn't, no, it was no, never no. intended that way, no. right? Um, and we just find that we're, if, if we, I do trust that the universe is benevolent and I do experience that we are put in the places we need to be at the time that we need to be mm -hmm. in so that we can also be those benevolent arms of the universe. Yeah. Uh, and you have certainly, most certainly been, um, been that mm. this week. What, what have you experienced um, in those instances when you realize that we were actually working together, um, and it's—I know it may be—it's challenging for me to talk about. You're a clinical therapist, like I can understand how these concepts are difficult to describe. But if we can just try our best. Okay. Well, um, I needed you to. It never entered my mind. I mean, I, that I was a conduit. Mm. I needed you to suggest that to me. And that was helpful because at some points I thought, why am I carrying this energy? Mm -hmm. Especially on the third trip, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that incredible terror and despair. Um, but knowing that I, you, you can't fight it if you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always been mm -hmm. a therapist of some sort and, uh, you know, bringing in people tend to come to me mm -hmm. and trust me. And, well, I, ha I, I mean, 
through you, I mean, I kind of learned about moving the energy, giving it to the fire, giving it to the, to the air, giving it to the ocean. Um, it beat the hell out of my body. I mean, I could barely walk after that third trip. Um, and, you know, we, we, the male-female energy, it's necessary at times, but then it disappears at times, you know? Those distinctions don't matter. Right. What's your pain? What's my pain? It's all, all one. And, you know, I was given that metaphor of the barbed wire in the first trip. And I was always kind of working with that image. And even when I, you know, was sleeping, dreaming, I was trying to, you know, what does this mean? What does this barbed wire energy mean? What does that mean to me? And how can we transform it? And I came up with a pretty, you know, after that third trip, that pretty, depending on how you look at it, brilliant or insane kind of description of it, <laughs> right? With that fine, we're walking that tightrope, right? But, um, you know, that the barbed wire was the suffering that both men and women create and that we have to work to transform that energy and we can stand at people's sides while they transform it and maybe help them channel the energy. But the key is forgiveness and you can't do that for them. But once they pluck that fruit, that fruit is very sweet. And, And that, you know, when I had that revelation, I mean, Courtney was on my left, you were on my right. So it was both the male, female, the yin, yang, and that we need, we need both because, you know, women, and this is a stereotype, tend to be the nurturer and, and, and when they overdo that and take away men's pain, then they shortchange men of that journey and it emboldens men to be that aggressor, that kind of toxic male energy. So we have to encompass more. And that was something that was so apparent on this trip was that some of us felt there were safe men and there were threatening men. And we, I needed the safe men and the women to protect me from the threatening men. But after all the trips, you know, it all worked out with the threatening men, you know, and they needed 
us. Mm -hmm. And love. They needed love. Right, they needed acceptance. Right, right, right. Right. That's such, right. So seeing this, <clears throat> the re rejection that men, mm -hmm. issues that men have from mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. and the um, aggression that mm -hmm. women face from men, it's, it's like this feedback loop. And until we get in there and disrupt that loop by having the conversations like we've had this week, by going into these experiences and just doing our best not to value judge them and just be there with them, mm -hmm. observe, and then talk it through later. There's been so much benefit for the people. And there's this, this whole like male-female healing this week has been really powerful. And you have been oh, so such much. an enormous part of that. Oh, well, I'm, that's a privilege. It is. It is a privilege and a blessing and I'm gonna work really, really hard to uh, get up my mushroom chops so I can <laughs> so I can do this work. I have a feeling you're ready for a bit of a mushroom break, though. Probably. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> Absolutely. So, as a, as a therapist, so let's mm. just talk about how mm. can this fit in the framework of traditional therapy. I, I have no doubt it can, and and I'm excited to learn about that. Um, I think the clients that you would use it on, of course, have to be, or who would choose to use it, mm -hmm. they would have to be super vetted. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, no, no history of psychosis or, or you know, serious bipolar. Um, but who knows, in time, we may know, learn how to work mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. even those conditions. Mm -hmm. But so many times with my trauma clients who are, you know, their trauma is so seared, you know, that default mode mm -hmm. network. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we have a, a great session and we're doing hypnosis or EMDR, dream work, they can move out of that and mm -hmm. capture a state that frees them from their suffering. But it's so challenging. And I feel with the trauma clients that this could be so helpful especially in the group setting mm -hmm. where the group is healing mm -hmm. and so women could have that goddess energy around them and be tripping with with men and learning there and getting a deeper understanding um and men can be seeing women as individuals yes objects Yes. Just so much. Do, do you think that psilocybin makes the therapist's job easier or more difficult? I would imagine that it would be easier in certain ways and more difficult in certain ways. I mean, the therapist herself or himself would really, really have to have done a lot of work, I think, and be able to be in that space mm -hmm. of just holding the space. 
And if you're very much up in your head, um, I think you, it wouldn't come naturally to you. Um, I think that you just have to know how to steer the bus and not make too many jerky movements with your words. Yeah, less is more. You have, you would have to dissolve any ego you had to be able to tap into your client's energy. Um, you would have to establish a trusting rapport for several sessions before you would ever do the psilocybin. Um, and you would have to have, I think, a really good skill at integrating at the end to help. And, and definitely to be non-directive but to keep the client in that safe container. Mm -hmm. And when they turn to you terrified, you know, you, you could say, you know, keep on going. Mm -hmm. You're safe. When you're in hell, keep on going, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a much longer journey mm -hmm. than a 50-minute clinical session, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think the therapist would have to have endurance, mm -hmm. incredible patience. I think the work that I did in hospice mm -hmm. would really help, really help, mm -hmm. because that whole idea of just being with, tapping into the energy of the client, and just holding that space for whatever happens. Do you um, understand? No. <laughs> Do you understand um, a little bit better now why I dose with Yes. Clients. Absolutely. 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 Maybe an initial, especially for a therapist I've talked with, they're just kind of like, it's like a shock effect. Like, what you do, you're, you what? Um, so, okay. Mm -hmm. um, well, where, um, as a, from a therapeutic standpoint, from a therapist standpoint, what are your hopes for the future of psilocybin? I hope that it is legalized in the therapeutic setting. Um, in two to five years, which I've heard some of the experts predict, I hope that any therapist who uses it will have to have training. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. How many hours? You know, how many hours do people need in Souls Seven space before they? Oh. You know. Well, I don't. There is no way that I would feel equipped this point and I and I don't think it's a matter of hours I think that it's going to be different for everyone and I think the therapist has to be really honest 
with herself or himself and say, hey, you know, are you prepared to do this? Mm -hmm. Know your limitations mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to need uh, mentors. Can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. Can't do this alone. But um, I think it's, it's, it's the new frontier, I hope. Uh, kind of backtrack that was usually the last question I asked but I wanted to ask um, how has your experience differed from your readings of the research or say Michael Pollan's book okay um, I think I ex well as I said I expected it to be solo mm -hmm. okay um, <clears throat> I expected to have insights and I was hoping to achieve ecstasy. I was hoping to burn through, you know, grief and my own limitations. Um, but, you know, it can be really, really, really challenging. And so he didn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, he didn't do the group, right? Um, and he was, you know, guided by music, and and I was not prepared for how physical it was. Mm -hmm. It definitely, I definitely thought more intellect. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't prepared for the sheer physicality of it. You know, both the the pleasant and the very, very unpleasant of it. Um, and again, I don't, I don't, you can read every book, but you've got to be in there. Yeah. yeah you the, can't prepare. Yeah. It's a mystery. <clears throat> and I do, I uh, may disagree with you to some degree um, in the um, time required in psilocybin space. Mm -hmm. um, I would agree that it's, going to differ for different individuals. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people are more um, energetically in tune or emotionally in tune. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, as you've seen, we've had four different experiences and everyone has been pretty vastly different. And that has pretty much been the case mm -hmm. with every experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, trying to be prepared for something that is just Un completely unpredictable mm -hmm. is really challenging uh, so going there repeatedly um, with with people who are safe or you know as, as safe as you can can assume mm -hmm. in those situations and really getting in there and exploring how we because you you I feel like you and I have a very similar uh, filtering system processing mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. um, but not everybody is, is the same so getting in there and finding out how is it that you work in the space? Right, right, yes, right. It's going to be really, really interesting if if we do develop um, legal models, how these things play out and what the training looks like and what the outcomes are. Um, and I hope that individuals like yourself can have a role in helping to steer that bus um, because that's going to be a very important one. I hope so. Um, well, 
What's your, what's your billboard? The, the, big, <laughs> the toughest question of them oh, all. Oh gosh! Uh, <laughs> you had so many one-liners last with, night. You I had so up, many T-shirts. They were they were brilliance. <laughs> Didn't anyone write that down? <laughs> well, we we were looking for our scribe, if you recall. <laughs> right, right, because right, I'm sure I was ex- exceptionally witty and brilliant last night. I think night. The, my favorite though is when you said, "Am I supposed to be learning something?" <laughs> I can't feel like I'm right. Are we supposed to be learning something here? There is a lesson. I just don't know what it is yet. (laughs) Right. Maybe that would be. There's a lesson here, but you got to put on. You got to have different eyes and different ears and a different heart. Mm. to understand it yeah yeah Yeah. thank you you're welcome thank you for everything you've been here this week thank you it was a privilege it it is very much a privilege and i very much look forward to to continuing to know you and uh, share experiences and conversations with you thank you thank you eric Well, after that great conversation uh, and hearing Denise mention eating mushrooms with Rumi, I thought it might be helpful for those of us who aren't too familiar with the 13th century mystical poet to hear some of his words and help us understand her choice a little better. Come, come, wherever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, even if you have broken your vow a thousand times, come. Yet again, come, come. We are as the flute, and the music in us is from thee. We are as the mountain, and the echo in us is from thee. We are as a piece of chess engaged in victory and defeat. Our victory and defeat is from thee. O thou whose qualities are comely, who are we? O thou soul of our souls, that we should remain in being beside thee. We and our existences are really non-existence. Thou art the absolute being which manifests the perishable. We all are lions, but lions on a banner. Because of the wind, they are rushing onward from moment to moment. Their onward rush is visible, and the wind is unseen. May that which is unseen not fail from us. Our wind whereby we are moved, and our being are thy gift. Our whole existence is from thy bringing into being. (sighs) Wow, Uh, that is beautiful. Um, And there's a lot to reflect on there. Uh, I find myself often mystified by non-existence, that all of the material that ushers forth from the immaterial, the invisible world that becomes visible, that goes back into the invisible. It's a, it's a magical, magical thing. And I would certainly say that we could call that psychedelic literature, uh, no matter what history of psychedelic use Mr. Rumi did or didn't have. So, well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Denise, for sharing this beautiful author uh, with myself and our listeners. And thank all of you for listening. Like the wind, you are invisible to my sight, but not to my mind. And you are why I keep doing this work. 
safe travels inward and outward until the next time